trust that we would know less than be transformed because it is your revealed will and word to us. So this morning we pray that you would do that, that you would speak through this broken vessel because no one came to hear Russell. They came to hear from you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're continuing uh, in Psalm 51 in a series we're calling Refresh. And if you recall, refresh means to restore strength, to animate, to renovate, to revive, or to restore. And, and we've, we saw David is at the heart of this psalm. Uh, King David, and it's, it's a very, it's actually the title, they would say, the heading of this psalm is actually, most would consider maybe authentic and accurate to the original text. Unlike, very often in the New Testament, other places, the, there are uh, added headings and so on, that heading is a part of the psalm which describes it as being at a time in David's life when he had made a colossal mess of things. He saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop or somehow and, and, and fell in love with her or lust with her and, and, and brought her to his home and committed adultery and, and abuse and rape. And then went to co- try to cover it up in conspiracy. Ends up having Uriah and his men murdered or killed on, in the field of battle. And believes he's gotten away with it until Nathan comes and confronts him. And says, God knows you've done this. You're the man who's done this. And this is the result. Is this psalm. Psalm 51. And we've asked the question, how does David who has made such a colossal mess, such a disaster of his life, who has potentially lost all credibility, has lost his ability to lead his people, he has lost spiritual credibility, and and in any sense of the word, has basically destroyed his life. However, David comes out of this situation victorious, and not only victorious, but singing. And then, not only that, it becomes an example to God's people. This psalm was designed, he says, for the choir master. It is designed for the worship of God's people, which is remarkable. It'd be like, we describe and, and, and go through my worst six circumstances, Russell's worst circumstance in my life, my worst sin, my worst disaster, and we're going to use that in public worship. Yet David is used here as a great example to us of what it looks like to find the refreshing grace of God. And that is the answer. David comes through this because he, know, he comes to know the refreshing grace of God. And that's what we've seen. Even as he cries out for mercy, he says, I, he does so in, this, in calling upon the steadfast love of the world, Lord, which we said was God's covenant promised love to his people. And in the New Testament, it is the covenant paid for in the blood of Jesus. So he can come knowing confidently that this grace would be given to us. And that is a mercy is abundant. It is overflowing. It is immeasurable. And that God's, God longs and loves to restore people. We mentioned that we're a people that like to replace things. We're a replacing people. Our phone gets old. Computer starts lagging, or car, you know, whatever. What we do? We get a new one. We get an upgrade. But God is not a, a, an upgrading God. God is a restoring God. Did you hear that? God is not an upgrading, replacing God. God is a restoring God. And we saw that David comes knowing and seeing and, and relying upon 
the grace of God. And he comes, and we saw last week, in a sense of genuine repentance. Not making excuses, you know, not, not half-truths, but he just lays it out there and says, Ah, it is me, it is my sin, and he describes his own brokenness in multiple ways. And that's the good news of this passage, is that in the gospel, God no longer counts our sin against us. We are absolutely, totally forgiven. And not only that, we are declared righteous. Our record of, of, of mess is blotted out. It says, blot out my transgressions. It's the, the eraser off the record. It is gone and is no longer counted against us. We are now seen as beautiful and righteous in God's sight. And that is awesome. However, there's way more to the gospel than that. We're going to see that this week. Is that there's more to the gospel than just being forgiven. And just having our records cleansed. In this passage, we're going to see the heart of the gospel, which is God's grace. Okay, so in other words, the, the, the gospel is just more than, put it this way, more than just fire insurance. You know, it's, it's not just a get out of hell card. And then you just do whatever in your life. But God's grace is so much deeper and so much more powerful in our lives than that. I love uh, Max Lucado. I heard him say this a long time ago. He said, uh, God loves you just the way you are, but refuses to leave you that way. That's what a great say. He loves you right where you are, but he doesn't want to leave you there. It's like my kids. I love my kids. We talked about this was it, last week or the week before. Uh, I talk about it all the time, especially when they were little. You know, actually, this yesterday, one of my kids thinks it's a good idea to start painting something on the carpet. And I'm like, I love you, but I don't want you to stay this way. I love you, and I want to wring your neck right now. I don't know, mix of those, right? Here's so. So God's grace isn't just forgiving grace; it is a transforming grace. God's grace is a transforming grace. And, and we're going to see here in this passage today that there's three aspects to his transforming grace. It's crushing, it's cleansing, and it's a creating grace. So let's look at those. First of all, his grace is a crushing grace. His grace is a crushing grace. Look, in, look at me in verse 8. He says... The second half of it, actually. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, now he's being really specific here. You know, he's not saying, you know, you've hurt me, and so therefore let me rejoice. He said, let the bones that you have broken. And he's referring to what, would ha- what it would feel like to have your bones broken. And, and if... Um, I think Spurgeon has put it this way. No punishment was probably cooler than the breaking of poor wretches alive upon the wheel when a heavy bar of iron smashed the great bones of arms and the legs. And the pain must have been excruciating to the last degree. You know, you talk about if you want to really torture somebody, just start breaking their bones. And that's where, that's where David is at. I mean, he's come to the point where he is broken. He is crushed. Now, he's done this to himself, right? He made the call. He made the decision to pursue Bathsheba. He made the call to, uh, to, to, uh, to, have, to, to, to try to cover it up and have Uriah killed and all this stuff. He, that was him, right? Yes, 
but, notice it says, you have broken. He's saying, God, you have broken these bones. He's saying, in other words, it wasn't just his actions. It wasn't just uh, the things that he went through. But it was actually God breaking his heart intentionally. It's a crushing grace. But notice he says, let my broken bones rejoice. Is he like a sadomasochist or something? You know, he's like enjoy pain or something. You know, like, no, he's saying, it's just a, such a, a, a unique phrase here. But he's saying that let my bones rejoice in the crushing. Do you, do you re, rejoice in the crushing blows that God brings in your life? You should. We, I, I don't know about you, I squirm, I complain, I, get, I grumble, I, I go through all of that. I don't normally rejoice. I'm just being honest with you. I always confess my problem here. Is when, when God's bringing the crushing blows, I normally struggle with it. I don't rejoice. But we need to, we need to appreciate the blow. We need to appreciate the brokenness that God is bringing us to. Um, Joe Novison is a uh, one of my, I think he's just an amazing preacher. Heard him speak at a conference years and years ago. He's a pastor of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church up in Chattanooga now, I believe. But he told a story when he was a young man, had just gotten married, was moving towards ministry, but at the time was working in this metal factory where they rolled out sheet metal. And he was working one day, and he wasn't paying attention. He was pushing metal in, and his hands went into this metal roller. And it pulled his hands in crushing every bone in both of his hands. And, and thankfully, the doctors, even, you know, I think nowadays they're doing better with orthopedics, so that they were able to save his hands. However, he has a problem. Oh, many, many of the nerve endings in his hands were destroyed when his hands were just laid flat. And he says, that is a real problem. It's a very, and it's gotten worse over the years, and, and the doctors are more and more concerned about it because pain is a good thing. You don't realize it, but pain is a gift. If you don't have pain, he says, I have to be super careful because I could be sitting there talking to somebody and my hand could be on the fire in the kitchen. And, and it's on fire, and it's like, oh, you know, and his hand's burning. I mean, any number of things can happen, and he could, his hand would be destroyed. He's the, the, so here's the thing. Pain, believe it or not, as much as we hate pain and all the things that we deal with with pain, pain is a good thing. If we don't have pain, we don't know something is wrong. And that's what he's saying. Let the, my bones that have been crushed rejoice because it is the pain that you have given me. It is a pain that I need to have. Look at me in um, Hebrews chapter 12. We're supposed to rejoice and, 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 and be thankful when God brings hard things our way. Look at verse uh, 6 with me. Is it up there? Okay, it says this. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate, children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Maybe not in a moment. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. David's saying, help me to rejoice in this feeling of destruction and brokenness. One author put it this way, God blesses us with violent, uncomfortable grace. Yes, he really does love us enough to crush us so that we would feel the pain of sin and run to him for forgiveness and deliverance. Uh, John, uh, excuse me, Jonathan Edwards put it this way. Is, this, is that is up there? It says this, all gracious affections, or our feelings and emotions for God, that are a sweet aroma to Christ, are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is humble, broken-hearted love. I think of another example of this. In the Old Testament was Jacob, the liar, the schemer. In his whole life, he, I mean, even as he's being born, he's trying to scheme and trying to get up and get ahead of other people. And he's done this, and he has hurt his brother, and he has hurt other people around him. And at the end of his life, he's, he's gone through all this stuff, and he's going to have to face his brother finally. And, and he's afraid or whatever. And he ends up wrestling with God in the middle of the night. And what does God do? He says God touches him and breaks his hip. And so, as a gift from God, I love this passage, as a gift from God, he comes limping, humble, and broken to his brother. And reconciliation could happen. Being broken by God is a gift. Now, we don't always like it in a moment, but it is a grace when God crushes us. So, we see first a crushing grace. Secondly, we see a cleansing grace. Cleansing grace. See, Verse 7, he says this. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. What, what, is, what is he talking about here? What is hyssop? And who cares what hyssop is? Well, hyssop is actually very important, because he's obviously pointing back to something. There is an instance in God's law which hyssop was specifically to be used in two instances. In Leviticus and in Numbers. In Leviticus, uh, if somebody had leprosy, they were to come before the priest, and the priest were to cleanse them with hyssop. And the other instance in Numbers is when somebody was defiled and touched a dead body, they were to come before the priest and become and be cleansed with hyssop and then he says wash me cleanse me so there's this process that happened and when they when when this happened with the those who were had leprosy or those who had touched a dead body they were to be washed and the word washed here is, is is specifically used not of cleaning the body but of cleaning clothing and that was a part of the process. After they did this cleansing process with hip, and they would throw uh, the blood of the lambs, it would just be this purification process of, of cleaning the defilement. Um, then they would take 
the person, they would wash their body, but then they would wash their clothes. They would launder their clothes. And this, this word wash or launder here is, 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 uh, is like, it's like to trample on. They, they, they would take clothes. They didn't have washing machines. Maytag didn't exist yet. And they would go to a river, and they would use rocks. They would use their feet, and they would beat the clothing with, in its cold water. And they probably didn't have uh, Tide. Uh, and they would beat the dirt and oils out of the clothing in order to wash it. It was a rough cleansing process. And he's saying, God, cleanse me. Beat me on the rocks. Beat all this out of me. Cleanse me with hyssop. But it's pointing to this cleansing of lepers and touching a dead body. So he's saying, I'm defiled. I am broken. I am in need of cleansing. Um, so here's the thing. What he's pointing to here, I believe, I think there's a lot of things, certainly looking for cleansing. And he's, what he's not saying here is remove my guilt. He's already talked about that. He's talked about God blotting out and no, not, and even talks about it here in some ways, not remembering my sin anymore. What is he talking about? What needs to be cleansed? Where, what is this cleansing that needs to take place? Well, there's a really big difference between guilt and shame. And I think he's talking about being cleansed of shame. What is shame? Shame is a feeling of being dirty, unworthy, unwanted, unused, not useful, just to be cast aside. And, and shame is a powerful emotion that we feel. It can, it can drive people to drink. It can drive people to try to you know, be successful at the cost of their, and everything else in their lives. It, it drives us. And shame is a powerful force in our lives. And I think as Christians, we very often miss the, a real powerful force in our lives, a powerful negative force in our lives, because all we're thinking about is guilt. When you think about guilt, guilt is in a courtroom. I can go to a courtroom and be acquitted, of a, a, I can be fully acquitted and said and declared not guilty, yet I can walk out the door and feel shame. So say I did a horrible crime, and, they, and some technicality, I'm declared not guilty. And I walk out the door, and I still feel like a criminal. Because a, a, guilt is in the courtroom, and that's important. Before the throne of God, we need to deal with our guilt. But we also need to deal with our shame. Shame is a personal, relational aspect. It is in the community. And that's what's happened, he's talking about here. Is that, and that's what happened with the lepers. And people that would touch a dead body. What was going on was, it, they, they were, it was a process of returning them back into the community. Restoring them back into relationship. Restoring them back into fellowship. Restoring them back into worship with God. It was also a matter of returning them into service. So if a, a priest would defile himself by touching a dead body, which was a part of the laws and rules or whatever that he would have to be cleansed in order to serve as a priest again. And so, there's another kind of picture here is that, that the clothes in the body had to be thoroughly cleansed for reuse. And it's a restoring, cleansing grace of God. 
And I can tell you the power of shame that has been in my own life. You know, I grew up, and the power of shame that I felt came from a dad who just wasn't there. And it was always this looming question, why, why wouldn't he want to be around? Something wrong with me? You know, and a brother that abused me. And, 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 and you know, when you're being abused, there's this thing that happens with people that says, it must have been my fault. And that shame drove me. Drove me in so many negative and destructive ways in my life. And for years as a Christian, I didn't even have an idea. Because I thought I had dealt with my guilt. God loved me, of course. He doesn't count my sin against me anymore. And yet, I still felt the shame. I still felt like I felt, I felt among other people, I felt in front of God. Why would God? God really doesn't love me. So one day, if I actually make it into heaven with my get out of, you know, get out of uh, my get out of hell card that i'm not really gonna be welcome there i'm gonna be like stowaway in heaven or something you know i'll just hide over here behind the garbage cans in heaven because nobody really wants me there and, and this picture I, I just i love it is this old testament picture which i for so long thought what a bizarre thing you know this cleansing of lepers and people touching dead bodies and these kind of things it, it makes it is a huge picture of what christ does for us it, it says, you're a leper. You, you don't, nobody wants to be around you, and you don't want to be around anybody. That's the way it feels. And, and you, it's like you've touched a dead body, you know? I just had this picture of a kid running around in, in our, when I was growing up in the playground. He had found like a dead rat or something, and he was chasing all the girls around with it. And they're like, get it away, get it away. And that's, what, that's the feeling of shame. You know, it's like everybody runs from me because I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm dirty. And the gospel says no. It lifts the power of shame. There's a beautiful picture in um, Zechariah chapter 3. And in Zechariah, is is that up there? Yeah, let me me read it. I I don't have it here somehow. But um, it's a a vision given to Zechariah. And it's such an amazing picture of what they're talking about here. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand accuse him, to accuse him. I've never heard that before. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, and the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You know, I've redeemed him, right? And so Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So here's the picture. He's there. Satan's accusing him. And, and he says, be done. His guilt was paid for on the altar. But there's more to be done. Why? He's standing there in filthy garments. Now, let's back up to that verse for me. Uh, that filthy here, it's so sanitized. I mean, I love our translations. I mean, this is the, e, the ESV, English Standard Version. It's a great version or whatever. But it's sometimes in the Old Testament, you just are in these passages, you don't get the picture. Because that word filthy, it means ex- excrement, manure, manure, whatever you want to call it. Okay? So think about how you could translate that. Okay? So because he's standing there with stuff, poop all over himself before God in the throne of God. You know? And so you can see, can you imagine? 
I, I told this story many times when I was in um, high school. I was invited to go with some friends to um, this prom. I, I actually had already uh, graduated. It was like the year after. And it was a prom at Roswell High School. And Roswell High School is big money. And, and so we put the best clothes I could find. You know, I had some crappy old khakis and a uh, blazer I found somewhere. Somebody was loaned to me or whatever. I don't even know if I had a tie or not. I show up. And I walk up to the front of this, this high school, and people are getting out of stretch limos in $1,000 suits. I might as well have been covered in turds, because I felt like it. I wanted to hide. I wanted to get the heck out of there, because I, I was so, up to that point, I was fine. I was like, I'm cool. Y'all look pretty good, you know? And then all of a sudden... And you've got to imagine, here's Joshua standing before God, holiness, righteousness. The angels must have been singing, holy, 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 and this is majesty. And here he is, in filthy garments. And so it goes on. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then I said, let him put the clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. These vestments aren't just new clothes. They're priestly vestments. So he's being restored into fellowship and relationship and into service and usefulness before God. So we see a crushing grace a cleansing grace, and lastly, a creating grace. Look with me in verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, Create. And this word is, as you may imagine, is exactly the same word you see in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. It is his creative power can change, and can actually, not only that, it's in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in Genesis chapter 1, there in those early verses, most would say, he is creating ex nihilo. He is creating out of nothing. So he's, David is saying, there is nothing good here. I ain't got, I, there's nothing I have to contribute. There's nothing I have to give. You're going to have to do it, God. It's got to come out of nothing. You know, it's not like I'm going to give a little and you give a little kind of, I'm going to cooperate with my faith here. No, it is, there's nothing here. You're going to have to create this ex nihilo out of my heart. And so God is, excuse me, David is asking for a heart that will choose the right things. A heart that will trust and obey God instead of continuing in sin and destruction. He's saying, God, I need a new heart. What is a new heart? A new way of doing things. Because I choose the wrong things. It is my nature. I've already said that. In sin, my, my mother brought, forth me, brought me forth in iniquity. Or iniquity, my mother brought me forth. And so, notice one thing here. David is not asking for better behavior. He's not asking for more accountability or more restraint. He's not like, God, help me like... Bounce my eyes. That's the thing now. Right? You've heard that. Bounce your eyes, guys. You know, don't look. Or, you know, get your internet accountability. And all that's good stuff. Don't get me wrong. Boundaries are good. But he's not asking for that. 
He's not asking for just to help. God, help me be a better person. Help me do better things. He's not asking for that. He knows that the reason he acted out the way he did, and he's created this colossal mess, isn't because of the circumstances, isn't because he needed more restraint, more willpower, or anything like that. He knew he needed a new heart. He needed a new start. So what does he mean? We get a clue in verse 12. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What's he saying there? He's saying, this is my interpretation of this. He's saying, give me a heart that rejoices in you and what you've done for me. Make that the center of my heart. Make it rejoicing and enjoying and being satisfied in who you are and what you have done for me to the point that it upholds a willing spirit. Isn't that the problem? It's like, I want to be a good person. I want to know God. I want to do the right things. But there's a willingness problem. I I struggle because one day I want to be good. You know, I want to do the right things. But the next day, eh, maybe not. And that's what's going on here. He's saying, I want the joy of your salvation to be the driving motivator in my life. That is what it means to create within me a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within me. Is that our hearts would be so in love with God, that we'd be so satisfied with Him, that we would be so rejoicing in what He has done for us in His Son Jesus that the driving motivator of our lives is that we would obey Him and trust Him. Remember, we've talked about this over and over again. What is the heart of sin? Autonomy, self-sufficiency. Autonomy says, I don't want to obey you. Self-sufficiency says, I got this, I can do it on my own. And a heart that loves God wants to please Him because He's good and lovely. says, I think you got the best in mind for me. Maybe, I don't know if I agree with what you're telling me to do right now, but I know you're good. I know you're beautiful. And, it, and I know you're good. I know you're beautiful. I know you love me more than anything I can imagine. So I want to trust you. That is a clean heart and a right spirit. And so a joy of our salvation is, in fact, what upholds the willing spirit. It is the rejoicing. It is the joy. So we, we tend to think negatively. And he, just, he, he doesn't, he's not speaking negatively here. He's not saying, Lord, help me not to commit adultery and murder again. You notice that? That's how we think. Help me not to do certain things. Help me not to be this way, not to be that way. What he's saying is, is God, help me to want something better. That is, and so, um, Amanda was at a, a training this past week for uh, church planners' wives, and they brought out a chart that uh, I'm familiar with as well, and it's called Root to Fruit. You heard that? And he's basically saying that there is a cause, a deeper root for the fruit in our lives. <laughs> so a tree produces certain fruit because it has certain kind of roots. And that's what's going on here. So David's not talking about behaviors. 
doing one thing right or one thing wrong or whatever. What he's saying is, I need a heart that would produce these things. So here's it. Stop trying to be a better person. It's making you a worse person. And there's danger here because so many pastors and so many churches, um, and I, bless their hearts, that's what we say in the South, right? Um, and I love many of these guys that do this. But they'll, they'll give you the ten steps or the five steps to a better marriage, five steps to a better parenting, or five things to be in a better life, whatever. Stop. It's making you worse. And this is why, because it's going to be out of a heart of joy in Christ that's going to flow into a fruit of love for other people. And, you know, some of that stuff is a lie from hell and it smells like smoke. It sounds good. It makes you feel good that day till Tuesday when you've messed it all up. So David made it super clear. It was not a circumstance that caused what happened. He is, and he's fully owned it. He's like, this is my sin. It is fully before me. It accuses me daily. And so you know, put it this way. Put this up for me. David knows it is in the transforming presence of God that true change occurs. It's in the presence of, it's the transforming presence of God that true change occurs. If you look at verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What is he saying there? He's saying it is only in your presence that I'm going to be changed and be transformed. And uh, Spurgeon, talking about backsliding, and then the, he was actually talking about this passage, says, asked a pretty tough question. You know, do, do you neglect being in God's presence? Do you neglect feasting in His Word? Do you neglect the means of grace, communion, and worship of God's people and the hearing of His Word? Do you neglect sitting in God's presence? If you do, you need to start praying with David. Create in me a heart, a clean heart, a heart that loves you, that rejoices in you and you alone. So, let's go back and ask that question. We've been asking, how could have David come through such a colossal mess? How could he have been restored? And it was, how could his broken bones actually rejoice? It's because God has offered to us freely, as a gift, his refreshing grace. And it's a grace that does say we are no longer guilty before him. He no longer counts our sins against him, but it's also a grace that will refuses to leave us where we are. He loves us right where we are, but refuses to leave us there. It's in the renewing, refreshing grace of God given to us in Jesus. And it's Jesus' um, actions and his work that accomplished all this for us. He came and lived a life, perfect life we could never live. He died a death that we perfectly deserved so that, and he was raised on the third day, so that we can, in his presence, receive power for a new heart. The creative power of God in our hearts. So, one guy, Marshall Siegel, put it this way. The good news of the gospel does not stop with pardon. We treat grace like it's God's big eraser for our every wrong or mistake. But God 
not, does not only mean to rub the page clean. No, he intends to write a new story in sin's place, replacing what was once broken, wicked, and dead with love, faithfulness, and life. Do you hear that, what he said? God's not just wiping the page clean. He's writing a new story. That is his crushing, cleansing, and creating grace. So, let me ask some questions. Do you, do you, are, do you have that brokenness over your sin? Or are you, or we talked about this last week. Are you minimizing it? Blame shifting? Trying not to look at it? Trying to hide it? David, David's, this, this passage encourages us to look square in the face of the ugly mirror and to be broken, be crushed. And it will. It will be crushed. And ask people to be Nathans in your lives. We mentioned this last time. Ask people to come into your life and, and hold the mirror for you. It hurts. You know? I married somebody who holds the mirror for me sometimes. secondly are you seeking the cleansing purifying grace of God are you seeking that the shame in your life would be purified and cleansed away from you thirdly are you seeking God to change your heart instead of trying to just change your actions and behavior and lastly are you drawing into his transforming presence daily let's pray God, 